Um, what am I doing? Oh my gosh. It oh, was that. Okay. It was that Patreon quite. I'm, I'm trying to go through. Never, never was the yeah. adjective unholy uh, used more effectively than to describe the way that I woke up this morning. But. <laughs> everyone, and welcome to the Protagonist Podcast. I'm Joseph Drowski, here with Todd Mack, and each week we look at a great character and a great story. Today, we're talking about Ender from the 1985 novel Ender's Game, which was written by Orson Scott Card. Uh, this novel is an expansion of a 1977 short story that Card had published, and the novel won the Hugo Award and the Nebula Award. And it turns out, I didn't know this, but Orson Scott Card went George Lucas on us, and he made some edits in <laughs> uh, later editions uh, from his original, particularly in, I guess, in 1991, he uh, had published what he calls the definitive edition, but it updated some of the world history events uh, that happened around the end of the Cold War uh, to be reflected in some of the discussions that happen on Earth. So, how do you feel about that? I I don't know. <laughs> I don't have strong <laughs> strong feelings. I guess. Like I've, the, the changes seem to be minor from what I saw online, uh-huh. and uh, not the same as like completely altering a, a character's introduction to an audience, as maybe George Lucas <laughs> <laughs> might have done. <laughs> Some of his changes may or may not have been yes <laughs> become infamous for yeah. I, like I said, I just don't really have a strong opinion one way or the other. I'm I'm thinking I've uh, I've only read the revised edition, so to me, there's that's all there is. Yeah, I think I have too. All right. Well, uh, how did you come to Ender's Game, Todd? Ender's Game. I, the first time I re- I remember hearing about Ender's Game was from my friend Mark Morell, uh, who was a we were friends all kind of growing up and through junior high and high school, and he. I remember before junior high, so this would have been in the late nineties, early eighties. Well, no. Uh, no, early nineties. F- swap those two. <laughs> swap those modifiers. Late eighties, early nineties. Uh, he was talking about this book, Ender's Game, that he just that he thought it was the greatest thing ever, and it took me a long time to um, to come around to it. And the reason why is because I knew that Orson Scott Card had written Ender's Game. And so I used to go um, haunt the local uh, used bookstores, and I found a book that I thought was written by Orson Scott Card. It was actually edited. It was a collection of short stories that he edited, and they were like stories that he had found inspirational. Or um, and the first one was really it was way above my pay grade <laughs> as a child. I was not like Ender Wigan when I was a kid. I was just a kid. <laughs> and I was not... I not was, like a little adult, just slightly smaller body. No, I was totally not prepared for the uh, content of the first story in the collection. And I was like, whoa, this is crazy. There's no way I can read anything by this guy. And then I read another one of his books and I got started on it and I, it just didn't do anything for me. And I was like, I, I don't know what the big deal is about this... Orson Scott Card guy, and then finally, like, way later, like, I think I was in college, maybe, when I finally sat down and said, I need to read Ender's Game, because I've heard so many things about it, and I read it, and I thought, oh, this is why everybody talks about this book, because <laughs> it's this really, a lot better than really, really uh, <laughs> imp- an impressive work of literature. So, that's my long story. Yeah, I uh, I think I read it in junior high, and I it's one of those that I can't really remember when I first, or even why. It probably was an older brother had recommended it to me. Yeah. I guess my brother, John. Uh, but uh, it's one of those kind of like with um, the big spoiler in Star Wars you know, about Darth Vader and Luke. Like, you, you don't know when you first actually learned that. There's a big spoiler at the end of this film, yeah. uh, novel, and I can't remember if I realized it was happening when I read it. Like, it's, it's so... I did not. Far in my memory. I can't remember if I realized what was happening or not. We'll get to what the spoiler is in a little bit. Uh, because it's, I, I, I've reread it and some of the other books in the series a, a few times. So uh, I'm fairly familiar with it. I hadn't revisited it in quite a while before we were doing this podcast. We're doing this particular episode because it was requested by a Patreon supporter. So thank you to our patron, Alex. This episode is brought to you by Alex. Thank you, Alex. This one's for you. I, th- I think we at least need to acknowledge that there's been a little controversy around Orson Scott Card. My favorite comment uh, that I, anyone had about 
um, some people's request to boycott Orson Scott Card and his works uh, was someone said, if I only read people's works whose views I agreed with, I could only read my own writing. And even then, I could only read my recent stuff. So, <laughs> <laughs> I think it was just a good policy for us. We're going to talk about great characters and uh, great stories. And that's the, uh, the caveat that we have is we're, we're just looking for those. Yeah. All right. So uh, you want to give us a spoiler-free synopsis of Ender's Game? Yeah, the quick hook is that uh, this novel is set in a science fiction future after uh, humanity has survived an invasion attempt and fought off uh, aliens who are referred to as buggers because they have an insect-like appearance. And they are preparing for, at least initially we think they're preparing for a future invasion. They're trying to get the best uh, military minds that they can. And in order to do that, they select the brightest children that they can find in the whole world and start training them from a very young age to be purely military-minded and and to just digest all of tactics and everything. And so Ender is taken up as a child to battle school where he and other children are being trained as soldiers and future commanders. And from there, uh, adventure Science ensues. fiction adventure ensues. <laughs> yes. And if you, if you uh, listened to our discussion of the hero's journey, you may be able to spot a few plot points yeah. that, are, that are looming. Yes, it definitely follows the hero's journey quite uh, a, efficiently. A, yes. <laughs> okay. All right. So if that uh, sounds interesting and you're not familiar with this, you might want to go uh, get your hands on the novel. And we'll have some links up for where you can find that on Amazon. I'm sure it's available on ebook readers. And it's available as an audiobook as well. So I feel like uh, uh, I feel like at this point we should at least say something about uh, that there is a film version of this. I actually have not. Yeah. I have not seen it. <laughs> well, I was talking about this with our producer, Andrew, right before we started recording. I saw this when it was like, for my body, it was like 3 a.m., but I was on a flight between oh. <laughs> Europe and the United States. <laughs> it was on the tiny screen in my seat in front of me. I wasn't able to sleep, so I was just finding something to watch, and they had Ender's Game. And so I watched it there, and I remember thinking, that was all right. But okay. I don't know that I would pay a lot of money to go see that. It's not a, it, it, but it, it wasn't an ideal viewing experience that I had. But it, did, would you say that it stands in for the reading experience? Like, oh, if you don't have time to read the book, just watch the movie. You'll totally get it. Uh, I think the most interesting things in the book, unfortunately, don't really translate well to screen. Okay. Um, so the uh, the book is very much driven by Ender's internal monologue and and a, a lot of interior elements of the characters and. I mean, the, the movie, obviously, for the medium that it's in, focuses a lot more on the physical actions. Okay. Although Asa Butterfield is a good actor for his age and, and does a good job of portraying some internal struggles and decision-making and, yeah. and yeah. elements I, like that. I don't think it was a... Uh, you know, my, my feeling was just kind of, yeah, it's all right, but I, I think the book is better. Though my viewing experience on the the back of the chair in front of me, headrest, uh, wasn't ideal. I do remember thinking that the effects of the the battle room and some of the other things that are very cool to visualize in the book were handled pretty well. Cool. Uh, I haven't been uh, actively avoiding it, but I just, I don't know why I haven't seen it yet. I have a suspicion, Todd. Tell me if this is the case for you. For me, I miss a lot of films that I'm interested in because... I have small children. <laughs> it makes it a lot harder to go out uh, regularly to the movie theater. And it turns out that small children eat up a lot of your disposable income. And even though I like mentally say, oh, well, red box that when it comes out, often I, it just falls off the radar. And I ah, it. Yeah, I think that that's what happened. I, it's, it's in the red box, and I should go and get it and watch it. I should have done so before this, but there is no red box in Spain. So there you go. <laughs> All right, you ready for the full... Yes, I have the, uh, the spoilery synopsis now. Okay, here we go. This book takes place in a nearish future in which Earth has been invaded twice by an alien race called Buggers. In preparation for a third attack from the Buggers, which they believe would be fatal, the military of Earth has developed a training program for children. They hope to find through this program a child capable of becoming a commander who will once and for all give them victory over the Buggers. As the book begins, we meet this uh, kid, Ender. He's six years old. Ender is unique because he's a third child. Uh, Population constraints have made it necessary to limit families to just two children, but because Ender's older siblings showed so much promise of future military success, they were encouraged, his parents were encouraged to have a third uh, child. Uh, So when the children on Earth are born, they're equipped with a monitor that taps into their nervous system and allows the military to watch their every move. In the first chapter, Ender has just had his monitor removed, apparently a sign that he's failed the test, just as his siblings had done. Uh, It turns out that his older, oldest brother, Peter, 
had been brilliant but really cruel and sadistic. And his older sister, Valentine, had also been a super genius, but she was too mild-mannered and compassionate. First one, too too hot, too cold. Yeah. <laughs> they're hoping the third will be just right. Yeah, so they're looking for the Goldilocks uh, zone <laughs> with Ender as the third. And uh, so the military leaders, led by Colonel Graff, um, hoped that Ender would be this perfect mix. And they were right. Uh, as a final test of Ender's... Because that's how it goes with children. Yes. <laughs> the third hits the sweet spot between the first two. Exactly. Uh, as a final test of Ender's potential, they allow him to be assailed by a group of boys from his school. Ender defends himself desperately and kills the leader of the group. Um, he doesn't know that he's killed him. He just wants to beat him really badly, and he does. It's proof to the military leaders that he's capable of being a great military leader uh, himself, and they send him to battle school in outer space. At the battle school, Graf consistently manipulates Ender in order to hone him into a lethal military weapon and skilled leader. Uh, while school consists of classes and a variety of games, the only thing that really matters in the school is the game, a uh, sort of tournament of battles held in zero gravity, in which armies of kids wearing spacesuits try to freeze each other using laser guns. Uh, Ender is promoted early and often and is constantly put in what appear to be impossible situations, yet he always, always, always comes out on top. He never loses. The entire book is, uh, the, sort of the majority of the book is a series of trials in which Graf constantly changes the rules of the game and attempts to break down Ender or force him to grow into the leader he needs to become in order to save the world. Uh, it's clear from the beginning that Ender is far and away the smartest person in the book, smarter than any of the kids in the battle school, and smarter than any of the adults, except that, meanwhile, back on Earth, uh, Ender's siblings Peter and Valentine, also still children, just sort of almost on the cusp of adolescence, They've decided to use their incredible intelligence to take on pseudonyms and write political essays on the internet. Peter believes that this will allow him to take over the world, and eventually he does. <laughs> Back in space, Ender progresses from the smallest of the first years to the smallest of soldiers in an army, uh, in a bad army, but eventually becomes commander of a ragtag group of what Graf considers to be the worst soldiers. Uh, Ender, of course, turns them into the best fighting group the battle school has ever seen. He makes some friends along the way, but whenever his life gets comfortable or he feels happy, he's forced to move to greater challenges. A uh, point finally comes when Ender has essentially beaten the games, beaten uh, beaten the game of the school. So he's 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 done everything he can there. He's also killed another boy in a fist fight, unbeknownst to him, sort of. Uh, and he's sent to command school. There he learns to captain a starfighter using a simulator, then a squadron, and finally an entire fleet. When he masters the simulator, he's introduced to his final mentor, Mazer Rackham, who was the commander who beat the buggers the last time they attacked Earth. Rackham pushes Ender further than he's ever been pushed. Ender's friends from battle school come back, and they become squadron leaders, and he directs them in battle using what he thinks is a simulation created by Rackham. In the end, Ender faces what Rackham tells Ender is his final test. Ender goes into the simulation facing an appointment of an opponent with a thousand times or more numbers than he has. They're also fighting close to what Ender is told is the bugger homeworld. Ender, totally exhausted, sends his fighters on a suicide mission to get as close to the enemy planet as possible. There they drop a bomb that blows up the planet and all of the ships in its proximity. All of the adults in the room, many dignitaries, um, there were lots of dignitaries there to watch. All the adults in the room break out in celebration, and Ender is told that none of this has been a simulation, but that he had successfully destroyed the bugger homeworld. Ender feels terribly burdened by the weight of the deaths on his hands. Uh, millions and or billions upon billions of deaths. Valentine comes to invite him to accompany her to settle a bugger outpost as a new colony for humans. He joins her and realizes that the buggers had tapped into his consciousness while he was fighting them. They left for him their memories and a cocoon with the eggs of the last of their species in Ender's hands. As the book ends, Ender has become the speaker for the dead, writing the memories of those uh, who have died, both buggers and uh, humans. And his writings have become scripture, the end, boom. Wow, Todd, we have come a long way in our summary since our early days of uh, The Quiet Man. That was, that was really like a good clip. Yeah. This is a little Very over well five minutes. My, my, I tip my hat to you. Thank you. A couple things that, because of the very nice and quick uh, summary, uh, you know, you skipped over some of the details. One of my favorite moments of the book, which I remember being impressed with as a child, and I still, or, you know, adolescent when I was reading it, I still like, is the Mazer Rackham being his trainer. Yes. When he comes back. Because in the book, it's uh, been, what, 100 years since the first? Yes. The first invasion. And so he he, he should be dead. And they explained that they... They realized they were going to need him to train, so they put him on a ship at uh, near light speed, and because of relativity, uh, they would just have him fly out and turn around. Yeah. <laughs> about uh, eight years have passed for him, yeah, but on Earth, 
100 or 100 plus years had passed. He, I guess, would probably stop and periodically check in because in <laughs> this book, uh, you know, that, that relativity is hard science, but then they also do the faster than light communication that they just right. kind of say, well, we got the technology from the buggers <laughs> from, yeah. from the aliens so without any real explanation as to how the faster than light communication is happening. So I'm guessing a ship just stops spirit. I'm like, Hey, do you need me to turn around and come back? <laughs> is it time? Time for yeah. you to come back and train someone? <laughs> but the, uh, the use of relativity in this and the entire series that goes on, I think is, is one of the really interesting aspects. Yeah, I agree. It's, um, I think card does a really good job of handling the science of this. Where I don't, I don't ever. I, I feel like he gives enough of an explanation that I'm like, okay, I, I buy that. Uh, but he doesn't get like entangled in it uh, in a way that draws yeah. that takes a, draws attention away from the story. For some hard uh, science fiction, sometimes I feel like the descriptions of the you know the, the science or the physics or whatever kind of begins to feel like in Les Mis, if you read the unabridged version, when they get into huge histories of the sewer system of, of Paris, and you're kind of like, okay, let's just move on to the story. I feel like that's a futuristic version of that that we get sometimes with science fiction. And I think Ender's, Day, Ender's Game does a pretty good job of just giving you enough of a hint that maybe there's some hard science that could explain these things, and then carrying on with the action. I agree. So I have a question for you. What's your uh, what do you, what's your what are your thoughts about Ender as a protagonist? I think he is interesting and simultaneously believable. And uh, you know the guilt and the near breakdowns that he has, and his kind of shifts between being a likable and then infuriating, depending on his mood. But at the same time, he's also kind of unbelievable because he's and, and this gets acknowledged sometimes in the novel, I guess. But he's not a child. <laughs> he's no. He, he's an adult that happens to be in a six-year-old's body. And I, I agree. And I'm okay yeah, with so, it. Like, it's not yeah, it's not uh, a criticism of the work. But um, I know... I, I was reading the introduction to the, the edition that I that I have. And um, Encard tries to do this thing where he says, you know, people criticize this book because they say that these aren't really children, that they're just adults in children's body. But then um, I guess people have written him letters saying, like, I am like Ender... And yeah, I mean, I'm he's like, trying to say uh, that they're... <laughs> I, okay. I think yeah. just because somebody this writes like the and says I'm exactly like Ender Wigan, like, uh, first of all, Ender Wigan would never write a sci-fi <laughs> fantasy novel writer a letter to say, oh my gosh, you've totally captured the essence of my childhood. Like, <laughs> so, so uh, by, yeah. by definition, anybody that writes Orson Scott Card a letter saying I'm exactly like Ender Wigan is in my mind, not like Ender Wigan, if there is anybody like this. And I mean, within the novel, this is supposed to be the gathering of like the top, you know, 0.001% of all intelligent children in the entire planet. Right. So there's that, but still they, they're not, they're not children. They, you know, they're not written as children. Yeah, I don't think so. Uh, But like I repeat, (laughs) that's not a knock on the novel. The novel is brilliant. And Ender is a great character, but to assume that he that that Card has somehow captured like the what it's like to be a child, I I I I don't buy that. I think he's created a really really interesting character, and I think that he's imagined what it would be like if you got the point zero zero one percent of the you know top most intelligent children on the earth and put them in this kind of environment. I, it's all believable to me, except the fact that like the enders really processing emotions like a, like a child. I mean, I just, and Valentine's not a child. Peter's not a child. They're just, I don't know. Yeah. And and certainly there are moments of immaturity throughout, uh, you know, the the children's interactions with each other. (laughs) You know, they're not, they're not like mature coordinated soldiers who are, you know, doing, you know, following their orders. So there is, you know, some of that that comes through, but again, the way they're processing the information and the way they, they react is not always what you would expect. I kind of contrast this with The House on Mango Street. I had my students just read that when we were talking about how, uh-huh. um, even though, you know, none of my students, you know, have lived the life, uh, you know, in a lower income street on Chicago or any of those things, all of them kind of said, well, there's some universal things where I can remember those moments of my childhood. I don't think anyone reading Ender's Game says, oh, I remember those moments of my childhood and the way I felt. No. But I will tell you, I will tell you what I think that he does capture, and that is, I think that he captures leadership. I think that he captures the loneliness of leadership. I think yes, that he captures, absolutely. 
And I do believe when he says that, like, um, soldiers have written him and said this is exactly what it's like to be in the military, I totally buy that. And looking up some stuff about this, it's uh, basically since it was published, it's been in circulation in U.S. military schools as required reading and has never been out of favor there. Yeah, and I think with good reason. And all of that, I think that that really adds to the sense of the feeling of authenticity of the novel is that he is capturing real he captures real emotion. It just, it's just not, um, it's the, it's the buying that, that all of that could be processed by any six year old on the planet, I think is maybe a stretch. I don't know. Maybe, maybe I just haven't met enough six year olds. Right. And I think, um, one thing that is important in the work and important for Ender that I think helps to increase the believability and certainly increases the, you know, if you, if you feel sympathy for the character is the fact that after he finds out he hasn't been doing a computer simulation, he basically has a mental breakdown. Yeah. <laughs> like he, he cannot process the number of deaths that he's responsible for both in terms of, you know, the, the human fighters that he, he thought he was just doing a computer game, but he was actually sending in soldiers into suicide roles. Um, and he struggles with that, but then also he is responsible for the genocide of an entire species. He thinks, uh, later on, as he said, he's, uh, he finds the the last egg sack essentially of, of the buggers, and they you know mentally communicate with him the instructions that would be needed to to restart their species. But he, he for a time believes that he has literally caused the extinction of an intelligent race. Yeah, and he he can't handle it. He he shuts down after the end of the the war. Uh, we're told that on Earth there's like a day of celebration, and immediately all the nations that have been united because of this external threat and this, this fear of the other, uh, they start squabbling amongst themselves for power and for footholds. And Ender sleeps through all of that and just doesn't, <laughs> isn't even aware of what, what's going on. Even on the uh, space station where they're at, because there are soldiers from every nation on Earth, there's, there's like battles outside of his door that he doesn't even care <laughs> what the result of. And everybody's, and, and in a lot of ways, they're fighting over him because he's the greatest military general in history. And so everybody wants him on their team, and he just sleeps through the whole thing. And then Valentine comes and says, you and I, we're leaving. And he's like, okay, that's fine. Let's go. Um, And let's touch on uh, Peter and Valentine, I guess. This is, for me, I would say, it's fascinating the way that he builds it up, that uh, because of the anonymity of the internet, they're able to gather these followers who like to read their opinions. And so, so Peter and Valentine create these online identities where they debate the issues of the day and um, they garner more and more following. And then, as you said, <laughs> at the end of this war, uh, Peter, under the, the pseudonym Locke, uh, presents uh, what, what, be, what becomes the accepted peace accord. Uh, you know, the treaty that ends up being signed is called, is called the Locke proposal or something like that. And, uh, you know, coming out of this, he reveals himself and then he becomes, uh, you know, eventually the leader of the planet. I believe there's uh card wrote a spinoff book that kind of followed him in, in more detail. I think they, they called him the hegemon. Yes. Yeah. The hegemon. I, I think it's interesting the way it's presented, but it's also for me, one of the weaker or, or things that pulls me out <laughs> of the story is that these voices online uh, gather these huge followings and, and transform it into uh, real world, you know, leadership of the entire planet. I think it's, I think it's important to remember when this book was written. Yeah. The internet was barely a thing that people were aware of because it was exclusive to the military and universities when it was being written. Yeah. I, it felt I don't know. I, I didn't. I was not um, turned off by that as you <laughs> apparently were. I thought it was really, really interesting. Um, I, oh, again, I think it's interesting, but the it just feels yeah, so implausible that you know, despite their age, they'd be accepted <laughs> as they reveal themselves. <laughs> it's funny that you say that, considering what uh, goes on in the rest of the book. <laughs> but this is well, I, and that's what I'm kind of saying is like I I I find myself I don't know if it's because of the sci-fi trappings and we're used to the genre conventions like the the battle world and you know the space station and then the fast and light communication and he's c- controlling actual humans flying ships around the bugger home world <laughs> like all those things I I don't know why I can accept those more and maybe it's because there's less of that distance and disconnect when it comes to the Earth side of things. 
because uh, the, the the earth that's described is not the uh, the same as the sci-fi futuristic elements that we see everywhere else. And so maybe I am less uh, less personally able to kind of make that disconnection that is necessary for you to suspend disbelief. Yeah, when I when I said in the full synopsis that it's sort of a nearish future. Uh, it's. Uh, I think I say that also because of this kind of disconnect. Because on the one hand, uh, it seems like a far, like a far future kind of thing. Yeah, because we have you know, faster than light communication, zero gravity. Yeah. We, we have now control over gravity. We have control over time, basically, because we're sending people at um, near light speed into space so that they can come back and a hundred years and, later. Uh, and, like like when Ender and Valentine go off, they like receive updates of Earth of Peter like dying, uh, you know, in his last days after right. ruling the Earth for the last several decades. But for them, it's been a year. Yeah. So all of that seems like far future stuff. I mean, none of that is happening next year. But the stuff that happens on Earth all feels very near future. Like, you know, if we were... Well, like it's, in the book, they're carrying around desks, which sound just like iPads. Right. <laughs> the way they're described. Like, they're carrying around iPads, and that's about as far as the futuristic technology gets described for the everyday people on Earth. Exactly. That they have iPads. They have iPads, and they're able to connect to the internet. And and these kids are able to develop these anonymous online personas and gain huge, huge followings. Um, I don't know. I, I, it seems way more plausible than anything else that happens in the story to me. <laughs> The the way Card describes the future, especially the the Earth future, is very real right now. I mean, with the as you've said, yeah, the, the internet, internet and the iPads yeah. and, and and the online. The only thing that's really implausible is the mentality of those who have that technology, because the the most powerful people on the internet are not political essayists right. with anonymous blogs. Yeah. It's it's anything but that. It's TMZ, <laughs> it's social media, right. and and celebrity culture. Yeah, that's good insight from our producer, Andrew. And maybe that's part of the disconnect is I, I don't see people starting anonymously with a political blog suddenly becoming huge, yeah. hu- huge actors on our world stage. I guess it's, it, it was maybe rose colored glasses of, oh, this internet, it's going to be a forum for great ideas to be discussed. Right. <laughs> and then this is obviously the future for this internet that I'm hearing spoken of from, from, you know, universities that are now participating in this. Yeah. Yeah. I, <laughs> this will be I nothing but right. exchange of great ideas. And, uh, I, 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 I can't remember where it was online, but I saw like, someone had questioned like, what would be the hardest thing to explain about our current culture to someone from 50 years ago or hundred years ago? And they said, the hardest thing to explain uh, would be that we have magical boxes we carry in our pockets where we can access the whole of human intelligence and communication and knowledge. And we mostly use it to look at cat videos. Yeah. <laughs> it's, I agree. it's the last part would be the hard one to explain. Not the idea that technology is going to reach this point where all information can be accessed. Like I think, for a long time, people have been able to kind of conceptualize that, but some of the frivolity and the and the or the frivolousness that that we use it for maybe would be a bit unexpected. Yeah, and I wonder if I don't know. I mean, we still considering all of human history, uh, we're still in the way early stages of yeah, the internet, very infancy. Yeah, and so I don't know. I I I hope maybe I have maybe I maybe I have rose colored glasses too, but I hope that someday we mature a little bit in our use of technology and so i don't know i yeah. i thought it was i, I thought it was a really interesting part I, it's actually one of my favorite parts of the book is uh valentine and her she's one of my favorite characters in the book and and i i think it's worth noting that the struggle that she has because as we said peter is the more aggressive and violent and he has no moral center and he, he doesn't have any empathy for other human beings and, and valentine is all empathy but they switch roles in their writings so right. De, and demosthenes demosthenes is valentine's pseudonym that she writes under and that's the you know the harder edge you know calling for strong strong you know stronger takes and Locke is peter's persona and uh lock is more of a modern and you know calling for cooler heads to prevail in all the situations and they end up debating each other and it says like early on they they both helped the other one to write because they recognized that right. they were doing this this switch uh but eventually uh valentine starts to say like i'm, I'm worried this mask so much is this my identity like right. am, I, am i starting to believe the things i'm writing is becoming too easy for me to write from this point of view yeah and um and i th- i think just their whole the the their evolution as characters peter going from being this really troubled and troubling <laughs> child i mean he's he's 
He's dark. <laughs> He's extremely dark. He's talking constantly about killing them and that nobody would know. Um, he's and torturing squirrels. <laughs> it talks about that his his bullying at school isn't physical uh, threats, but he emotionally destroys anyone that he doesn't like. Right. He and knows exactly what you what, fear, and then he gives it to you in high doses. And and it also often. said that he he finds the thing that you're most ashamed of, and he shows it to the people that you're most that you most respect. Yes. And uh, and Ender, and that's how he gains power. Uh, Valentine gains power by. Basically, just loving people and knowing what they want and giving it to them, uh, being able to meet people's needs, and Ender gets power by just being the best. <laughs> yeah, um, you mentioned in your synopsis about him uh, in school when the bullies attack him and he he kills one of the boys that he doesn't know that he's killed him. But I think it's key to how it's presented in our understanding of Ender that he's making a tactical decision that the only way he won't be bullied and picked on the rest of his life is if he takes them out with such violence that no one will want to bully him again. So it's not that he takes pleasure in the violence the way Peter does. It's that he sees the tactical advantage of uh, using full force right now uh, for greater peace from here on out. Right. And that's, that's what they most uh, desire in him, right? I mean, they need somebody that will win at all costs and that and will, will win decide. decisively. And it's not because, I mean, even though we said Peter doesn't have any empathy, I think he, uh, in his, uh, desire for control and power and the way that he enacts, uh, violence on others and on other creatures, I think there's an emotionality to that, that Ender doesn't have. Yeah. Uh, the, the other thing that was interesting to me in thinking about, like people that are gifted and kind of savants and things is um, all three of these children uh, are really emotion, like have loads of emotional intelligence that I think we often don't see in, uh, in lots in gifted individuals. So you'll see people that are like really brilliant at, at, at some things, uh, but they often lack kind of emotional kind of social intelligence. But these kids are like across the board, they're just genius at everything. Well, and even if like for Peter, like he doesn't experience the emotions and social norms the way everyone else does, but he completely understands them. Yes. He knows how to manipulate them. Yeah. And Ender is, and just, so he knows how to present a front that he's not actually feeling, but it will get, it will see, make him seem normal to others and allow him to get what he wants. Yeah. And that's, I mean, I, I don't know. It's, um, I think it's a really interesting element that these kids have is that not only are they, that like uh, IQ off the charts, but they're also emotionally really, really intelligent and they're able to, um, uh, their theory of mind is super developed. So they're able to see what other people see and feel what other people feel. And, um, uh, Peter doesn't care about what other people feel, but he's definitely, uh, able to see the world through their eyes, uh, which I thought was, uh, which was interesting to me. So about that genocide. <laughs> uh, yeah, like, um, I guess how... Let me, let me pose a question to you right. to maybe give it some context. As you mentioned with the disproportionate response and, and, you know, being excessive now for peace in the future, is it said in the book whether there are other additional intelligent races that may be observing the war between the Formics and Earth? At this point in the Ender series, it's said that these are the only two. And the um, I know the Formic, which is the the real name of the buggers. The buggers is a slang name that all the children use um, for them. But uh, when they communicate with Ender at the very end, when they kind of like dump their their memory uh, into him, it says, "You were the only other intelligent race we've ever encountered." Um, and I know in later books they do encounter at least one other intelligent race. I haven't read them all, and it's been a long time since I've read the ones that I have read. But I know specifically there's at least one other intelligent race that they come across. So the the disproportionate response is not really a viable philosophy in this context. It is an absolute genocide. Yes. Yeah. yeah the It's not, yeah. It's not, like Ender says, if I take out this one bully in the earlier setting, if I take out this one bully, no other bully will bother me. Uh, but in the war that is fought, when they take out the buggers, there's no other bullies lurking around the corners that are going to leave humanity alone. They just uh, don't want this one bully to come back anymore. Right. And part of the tragedy of it that Ender finds out is that they were not. They, at first, they literally did not conceive of humanity as 
having intelligence. Um, right. Like they were so alien to them, uh, and the way humanity communicated and the way they did everything, they, the, the buggers just couldn't conceive that these were intelligent beings. And when they did learn that it says they felt as a race, the, the buggers felt shame and sorrow for what they'd done, but they could not find a way to communicate again with humanity. Right. Because they, they just didn't. Uh, the, the buggers, it's revealed, uh, communicate telepathically. They have no written language. They have no vocal language. Um, it's all entirely within their thoughts. I think going back to and, this point about you know ending this fight so that nobody will come and attack me versus ending this fight so that this person will never be able to come back and fight me. I think early on, so when he kill, when he beats up Stilson at the very beginning. It's definitely this is when, before he goes up to the battle school, right? So he's he they they pull the monitor out. He thinks that he's not going to battle school, and so and then these kids come and he says, "I don't have a monitor. Nobody's here to protect me. And if I don't win this once and for all, then people the kids are just going to keep coming after me over and over and over again. Especially these kids. Uh, and so he ends this fight decisively. He doesn't know that he's killed the kid, uh, but we find out later that the that the kid dies from his injuries. Then um, when they're going up to the school. A kid is just kind of badgering him, knocking him on the back of the head, and uh, Ender breaks the kid's arm on, on accident. Uh, but that's very much, I think, also like I want people to see and know that they can't mess with me. But later when he kills Bonzo, this is the last fight that he has before he gets sent to command school. That's very much about Bonzo, don't you think? I don't think it's yeah. about, I don't think, like, that's a, that's a really personal thing, and he says during that fight, um, if I don't finish him now, uh, he will come back over and over and over. Like, he will not stop unless I, and you know, make him stop once and for all. I think that that's about Bonzo. I don't think it's about anybody else, because nobody else in the school uh, has, is interested in, in doing him harm. Bonzo's well, the only he, one, isn't he? Bonzo does have the the group with him, you know, of other commanders. <laughs> right, but they all step aside. I mean, but- right, I mean, they weren't going to come in and fight him until Ender is able to goad him because of his pride to fighting him one on one instead of as a group. The classic technique <laughs> of, <laughs> of convincing your enemy to give up all of their advantages. Yes. <laughs> uh, read Infinity Gauntlet, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Um, so anyway, I think that, I, I guess what I'm saying is as the story progresses, I think that, um, that we see the, it's not just about so, so that everybody else will see and leave, everybody else will leave me alone. I think with Bonzo, it's about if I end Bonzo, then this basically ends because I don't think anybody else on the ship has the guts to face him uh, yeah. except for Bonzo at that point. And I think there's also, um, Ender's personal mental state when Bonzo attacks him and uh, when he reaches the bugger homeworld in the simulation and uh, is very similar in that um, this happens after Ender's been made a commander of an army at battle school, but they keep changing the rules of battle school for only for his army to make him at a disadvantage every time. And he has to think of new ways to win. And he's just getting more and more emotionally and physically worn out and, and just destroyed. And when this happens, he's, he's at the end of his rope and that's when he makes the decision. Like I'm going to, I'm going to stop this one person. And then the same thing happens with, uh, the home world he'd had, like he had collapsed. Uh, they were running him through these simulations. They were telling him that this is all training for when this really happens. We need to see how far we can push you and how hard we can make this for you. And he literally collapsed, uh, at, uh, the console where he was commanding things and was out for a day or two. And then they, they brought him back for the fight with the home world. So in both these cases, he's in a, as fragile and emotional and mental state as he, as he is at any point in, until, you know, he, he gets more fragile after he finds out that he's actually um, destroyed an entire race. Right. The experiences all mirror each other where they push, 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 push. He reaches the edge of breakdown or <laughs> passes the edge of breakdown. And then... And he, do, and, and he commits more violence than he ever had before. Right. But also comes up with more brilliant solutions to problems so then so once he's at his his very very weakest then they'll present him with an impossible problem and then he sort of throws up his hands and says i'm not even gonna play this game anymore and then uh, finds a solution that would that could only ever work one time and he's uh, he's, it's cheating within the game yeah right it's cheating yeah in battle school it was never explicitly in the rules but it was always implied that you won once you disabled the other army and passed through their gate 
And when he's finally like throwing up his arms, he's like, fine. You know, he's, he's outnumbered. Uh, the other team has all the strategic advantage and, and he, he realizes he's like, well, I guess we really only have to get someone through the gate. So they send their whole army like as like a flying V right. <laughs> in front of them and they just get someone through the gate and the other armies are like, wait, what? <laughs> like they, they don't realize they've lost at first. And when it comes to the, the bugger home world, uh, he just, you know, there, there's thousands of the bugger ships, uh, around and, uh, only, is it like 70 or 80 of the human ships? Yeah. And he says, fine, we're just going to faint until we're able to get one of our devices, which causes molecules to be unable to be stable next to each other. and kind of causes a chain reaction. He's like, we're just going to shoot their home planet and blow up the whole home planet. And it'll expand out like the Death Star explosion and, and take out their entire fleet, right. which is, uh, what he, what he's able to do. This was just a minor thing when I was going through the book this time, I, I thought it telegraphed that finale a little too much. When right before the final battle, and he, uh, Ender leans over to Maze of Iraq and he's like, what happens if I use the weapon on the home planet? Yeah. <laughs> I, I almost wish that line hadn't been there just as a, as a reader to experience him actually doing it, because it kind of said, this is exactly what's about to happen, everyone. Yeah, I agree. But I didn't pick up on it when I read it the first time, because I'm not as smart as Ender Wigan, so... <laughs> <laughs> oh, I was going to say, with uh, some of the other characters I think are worth touching on... Um, what did you think of, uh, is it Colonel Graf? Is it Colonel? Uh, Colonel Graf, right? yeah, Colonel Graf. Yeah. Uh, I think he's really interesting. I, um, I was trying not to think of Harrison Ford. I think it, it is Harrison Ford, right, in the, in the movie? Yeah. That is Graf. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a very, very different than what we get in the book. Yeah, I, I imagine. It's, it's interesting because he feels so driven to push Ender uh, but at the same time, he, you can tell that he really loves him um, and cares about him. Uh, this need for survival and to kind of survive at all costs, I think he shares that with, with Ender. I mean, there, yeah. there are people who have sacrificed themselves and just said, you know what, I'm not going to do that. Like, I'm not going <clears> to <throat> kill my neighbor because I, don't, I, I won't. And it happens to individuals. Uh, the idea behind this book is that it's okay for individuals to sacrifice themselves, but a species won't, and that a species will come up with somebody who will push them uh, to survive. And and Ender is set up as that person, but there is no Ender without Graf, right? Yeah, Graf is the he's in charge of the battle school for anyone who hasn't read it, and so he's he's been training all of the students who come through and. They're searching for the Ender, you know, the one that's going to be the most brilliant, and they know that they haven't found him yet. And they, because of the timing of where the fleets are out, when they, you know, they know that they're actually going to be fighting these battles very soon, they kind of see Ender as their last chance, but he's also the most brilliant one they've had. But um, I had forgotten how much time actually passes, and I like how they use Graph to show the passage of time yes. uh, in, in the novel. Uh, I think the film condenses the time and mentally I had condensed the time that takes place because he's on battle school for years. And he's also then when he, when he gets uh, graduated up to the Eros satellite or asteroid where their, their base is where he's running the, what he thinks is a simulation, but it's really an attack on all of the bugger outposts and, and the bugger homeworld. Uh, it's, it's uh, over a year that he's there before they start, you know, telling him that he's running the simulation. But the way they use Graf for this is they keep saying that he's getting fatter every time Ender sees him. Uh, and he kind of says, well, I eat when I'm stressed. And, um, but th- there's a quote in the book, and it is that human beings are free except when humanity needs them. And it's said about Ender, but I think it's also true of Graf. Because yeah. we kind of find out that Graf, he has given his whole life to this battle school and to the idea that he can train or, or identify who will be the one to save humanity. And he'll push these children as hard as he can, even though he, he mentions his guilt over doing this several times that, you know, this is for the greater good of humanity. And, um, when he travels with Ender from battle school, um, it's real that he, he has no possessions. He says, I've never, it's like all of my pay is in one bank account. I could live off of the interest that's coming there, but I, I, cause I've never touched it. I have no personal possessions. He's completely sacrificed his, himself and his life to this idea that he can help to find, uh, that, you know, that will, will be the savior for, for humanity. In some ways he seems to be the, the counterpoint to Ender where his close relationship to those he's, he's, um, shaping or damaging, um, is in contrast to Ender's 
complete non-relationship to the soldiers he's sacrificing in battle. Where Graf is, is seeing constantly children dissolving psychologically, mentally, and physically um, as he's trying to win this war. Um, and Ender has no personal co- connection to the soldiers he that he's... He thinks they're blips on a computer screen. It's yeah. just a simulation. So in, in that sense, they're kind of exact opposites in their roles in the war. Yeah, but they're also, like I said, I think there's a lot of similarity to the personal sacrifice they go through, though Graf has, has kind of chosen his his role, whereas Ender was chosen for his role. That's the thing that kills me about the end of this book, is that, and it's the thing that kills Ender, is is that he... Spoiler warning, not literally kills Ender, but <laughs> <laughs> he's still alive at the end of this one. <laughs> No, it's just he he's so smart and he and he is constantly recognizing how they are manipulating him and he says uh you know I'll let that I'll follow their game but they're not manipulating me I'm choosing to do all of these things when in the end uh the greatest manipulation I mean he is hoodwinked into this right he it, yeah. in the end it they get they have the upper hand on him Oh, well, there's, I'm trying to remember, because I remember when I was reading it, there was a specific moment where Ender, like, he was showing his intelligence and he knew what was going on, but he didn't really know what was going on. So there was this, right. uh, yeah, like you said, this, uh, it's like a double, it's a double blind or something, right? So he, yeah, he, he thinks that he knows what's going on and he often does. He's often right about the way that Graf is manipulating him. Oh, he's isolating me. He's doing this and that. And that's fine. I'll do this, but but I'm doing it because I want to do it, not because Graf is tricking me into it. So I can see through his his schemes. When in the end, he's tricked into destroying a whole entire race. Right? I mean, uh, he blows up the whole a planet, a species, and and he's and he's completely fooled into doing it, and and it just breaks my heart, and it breaks his. Uh, yeah, he's he's a broken. Once he finds that out, he just shuts down. He he cannot uh, handle the you know what he's done in any way. Do you feel like that's? Do you feel like? Do, do you buy that? Um, that that's that was the only way for them to do that. Because yeah, they say the reason that we didn't tell you is because if you knew, you wouldn't have been as daring. You wouldn't have been as as uh, reckless as we needed you to be in sacrificing people and. Um, doing all of these, as long as he believed it was a game, a game can always be reset, and there are no, uh, there are the, by definition, a game has no uh, long-term consequences. So, as long as Ender believes it's a game, then he is willing to do all kinds of crazy things and cheat and break the rules and sacrifice his soldiers because uh, he just can unfreeze them at the end of the thing and they're fine, or they can just restart the simulation. And so they tell him you had to. They, he had to believe that it was a game all the way through to the end. If he ever felt like it wasn't a game, he would have become too careful, and uh, and they wouldn't have been able to win. Do you buy that? I don't know because we see him, you know, twice. Even though he doesn't know he's killed them, like he he makes the most extreme decisions in these uh, other, you know, his breaking point situations on Earth and in the battle school where he kills someone else. Uh, but it would be hard for him. I guess he used that level of violence, uh, hoping for the effect of the violence, but without the death. Um, you know, he, he wanted the violence to be a warning, and there's no way he could convince himself that anything other than uh, genocide is what he's playing out. Um, if he was really in charge of the, the, the fleet, like he questions whether he killed uh, Madrid uh, Bonzo after after the fight in the shower. Like he, he says, like, he was so limp, maybe I killed him. Yeah, but. Going in to use the the weapon that they have on the homeland, there's no way he can say maybe this will just be a warning shot. Just <laughs> <laughs> we'll far kind of what he was hoping to get the bullets with just the warning shot. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think it's uh... so we've seen him enact that level of violence, but it was not with the deliberateness that he would have had to have had uh, when he was really, if he had known he was controlling the fleet. Yeah. Um, the, uh, there was another point I wanted to ask you about, and this was um, after the battle school and before he goes to the asteroid that's called Eros, I believe, um, there's this interim on Earth. Uh, and following the 
the hero's journey, you know, he descends from outer space yeah. onto a, a lake. He, like, he goes and hangs out on a lake on, on the earth. And at kind of his, his lowest, well, to that point in the story is his lowest moment. Um, and it's interesting that you it, would say that that's his lowest moment. Cause it feels to me almost like apotheosis, right? Like he's become a God and he's like, I'm just happy to, but this is after he's had that fight in the shower yeah. and after he's completely given up on the game and he says, I'm not playing, I'm not playing anymore. This I'm over. And, uh, Graf says like, we can't take him to battle school. He's broken. Right. <laughs> we need, we need Valentine to come and fix him. So yeah, I, I don't yeah, know yeah. that he's become a God. I think he's, he's broken and he needs, uh, you know, the, the help of Valentine, uh, in this kind of, you know, like we talked about in the hero's journey, like at, at this low point in this watery descent. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. I gotcha. From, from battle school down there. Uh, and then he rises again and then, um, I guess continuing after the battle, we get, I've always said Frodo is the best example of the inability to return home <laughs> after <laughs> the cycle of the hero's journey, but perhaps Ender could be added to that list of those yeah. who can't return home after the, after the cycle because they've been so altered and changed through it. Would be really, and I guess, yeah, I, I think there's a lot of similarities. Similarities could probably be drawn between Frodo's mental state at the end of uh, Lord of the Rings and Ender's game or Ender's at the end of Ender's game. Yeah, I agree. It would be, um, I was just thinking, what an interesting uh, alternate universe it would be where Ender returns and and confronts Peter. Well, uh, Valentine said Peter had planned for this. Like, Peter's goal was to have Ender return. Yeah. And then this was going to be when Locke would reveal himself as being Ender's older brother, when Ender would return as a conquering hero. Uh, and Locke would be able to reveal himself as, you know, now that the peace accords have been signed as his, his older brother. And with like, he wanted the visuals of this, uh, older and physically superior Ender is what he wanted people to see Peter as. But obviously when you said like this alternate version, I don't think Ender would go and be a pawn in that particular game though. At that point he's, He's not really making active decisions. No, he's he, maybe he could have been a pawn for at least a while before he he healed up some. Yeah, it's it kind of reminds me of um of another Tolkien. <laughs> Here's another Tolkien reference of The Hobbit, where once Bilbo's journey is done, it's sort of done. Like once his hero's arc is complete, then he just the the, the story wraps up really pretty quickly, and there's not a lot more for him to do or say. Um, and I feel like that's kind of how the story ends. Once this arc is complete, Ender just kind of rides off into the sunset. I mean, he, he's got important stuff to do still. Right. But... Yeah, I mean, there are sequels. And well, and I guess saying that there's one interesting thing is the reason that Orson Scott Card expanded the short story into a novel is that he had a contract for a sequel novel, which became uh, Speaker for the Dead. To But he, as he was trying to write Speaker for the Dead, he realized he needed to add more to Ender's game for Speaker of the Dead to work or Speaker for the Dead to work. Uh, so he asked for permission to turn in an expanded Ender's game, uh, novel before he turned in the one that was contracted uh, for Speaker for the Dead. Good move. Yes. <laughs> and, um, I, I just wanted to touch on the Speaker of the Dead cause the concept is an interesting one where, uh, the, as you said, it, it becomes a religion uh, within the Ender's Game universe to have uh, you know speakers who come at funerals and speak for the dead, and their role is not to honor or, or gloss over the individuals who have passed, or, in, or you know the first tome of the Speaker for the Dead is is a a novel that Ender's, Ender writes about the buggers, but it's to show an honest and true history of this person, including all the good things, but also recognizing any faults or flaws that they had. Yeah. And it mentions that the, the second, which kind of becomes the two volume scripture is that Peter Wiggins, when he's dying, he asks Ender to write his story. Like, uh, no one knows who the speaker for the dead, the first speaker for the dead is who wrote the story of the, of the buggers. Uh, but Peter figures out that it must be Ender. And it says that he and Ender have a lot of conversations as Peter's dying and Ender's still only like, I don't know, 15 or 16 at this point because right. of the, the relativity that he's been traveling at, uh, you know, these faster than light speeds. Uh, they have all these conversations and Ender comes to understand Peter and he writes a, um, you know, speak for the dead version for, for Peter. And those two volumes become uh, the, the scripture for the religion that builds up around this, this idea of presenting the, the true and honest uh, nature of individuals. Yeah, it it reminds me a little bit of our discussion about Mouse and this um, this idea of taking control of the narrative. Um, 
I I'm pretty skeptical of the idea of any um, kind of true and honest. I mean, well, I don't know. Uh, well, it needs to be in a fictional world that we're <laughs> that you can say that this was a pure encapsulation of these people. Right. I mean, I guess what I'm saying is, anytime that you write history, you're making decisions about what does and does not get included. Um, there's no way to include everything in history because there are infinite. There's an infinite number of things that could be included in the history of anything, right? Yeah. Uh, and so any and historian, of a person. this is Hayden White is a philosopher who talked about this and basically um, kind of pulled the curtain back on historians and said historians uh, often scoff at um, storytellers uh, because they say, well, what we do in history is we just tell the facts as they are. And Hayden White says, no, actually – uh, you you are telling stories just the same as everybody else's because you have uh, all of these things in front of you, but you can only you you have to make decisions about what you will and won't say. There's too many facts. There's too many facts, and so um, so I, I'm kind of skeptical of this. I, I I'm I would be interested in reading Speaker for the Dead um, to see kind of how it plays out in in Card's mind. Uh, but in my mind, it's pretty tough to swallow. It's a tough pill to swallow this idea that we'll tell the true, uh, the true, honest, objective story, warts and all. Um, he still has to be making decisions about what does and doesn't get included in that story. Yeah, and I think it's also it's very interesting that this is how Ender's Game ends when so much of the side plot has been about false identities and presenting these faces to people and um, allowing people to accept and, and believe those as reality, um, you know, particularly with the, the Peter Valentine storyline. It seems like there's there's something that he was getting at with our with the, the way that we're able to present reality on the internet. You know, like we said, even in, even though he was writing this when the internet was in its very infancy and, you know, what becomes accepted as reality about these things and then peeling that back and showing what's really there. But as you're saying, how can you really show what's really there? Cause all of us are on some level doing a performance, right. you know, within our lives and, and presenting even to ourselves and to our families and to others. We, you know, we're choosing what we're going to, to perform or, or show show to everyone. I, and certainly now with social media and the way that so many interactions occur, there's a higher level of mediation than ever before. But I think there's always been that level of, of, um, I don't know, a lack of authenticity sometimes, or, or at least we may not even know ourselves. What is our true self? Yeah. Well, it's just, I mean, it's, uh, it's just this fact that you can't show everything, right? So whether we're talking about my Facebook profile or my, or my life story, there's no way to tell everything. And so I have to make Or even choices. just a, a conversation with, with your wife, which is, what are you thinking? And, and like, you can't really, right. We can't process everything that we're thinking and, and put it out there. And so, so we, we encapsulate right, it. So we make decisions about what is and is not important for other people to know about us. And I would think that even a speaker for the dead who sees his job or her job uh, as showing the true nature of somebody uh, they have. They're going to have to be making the same decisions about. Um, well, this 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 thing really shows the true nature. This thing is not important. When somebody else could come along and see it as the exact opposite and say, well, that the thing that uh, that writer A thought was important is really inconsequential. It's really point B that writer the the first writer uh, glossed over. That's really the important part. This is why we can have multiple histories written about the same events. Uh, or the same people. You can have multiple biographies of Steve Jobs and everybody saying, that's not true. That doesn't really capture him. And the reason why is because they're all making decisions about what they think is and is not important uh, to tell about his story. They're all dealing with essentially the same body of facts. And I just, I, I don't see how uh, how you can get around that, uh, even and, and as pure as your intentions are. Yeah, and it mentions that like there's itinerant speakers who will go around and perform this, but how how do they you know consume enough information to be able to do that with even approaching accuracy, even without all the issues that are being raised? Right. All right. Well, anything else that you wanted to uh, touch on? In this <laughs> no, one? I did not. That uh, conversation took a turn that I was not I was not expecting <laughs> to come out of this uh, with a huge criticism of history and historians, but. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's, a, it's the writing of history and biography and memoir is all really, really important. And um, 
And so I don't want, I don't want people to think that I'm like totally against, against it. I think it's important that we recognize what's going on when, when we read any history though. Yeah. I, I completely concur with that. Well, I guess that wraps up this episode. Thank you all for joining us. And remember, you can subscribe to the Protagonist Podcast in iTunes. And we would please ask you to leave a review for us there. Particularly a good one is what we'd like. Uh, it may not seem like much, but it does help us out. And you can find links to everything that we've talked about in this episode and a list of all of our shows at protagonistpodcast.com. And if you want to suggest a character or uh, have any comments about anything we've said, you can email us at feedback at protagonistpodcast.com. Or you can follow us on Twitter at protagonistpod or at Todd K. Mack or at Jay Dorowski or producer Andrew is at Andrew underscore Dorowski. And please like our Facebook fan page called Protagonist Podcast. We love any feedback that we receive. Thank you again. And we will be back next week to talk about another great character and another great story. So long. So long. Scott card and Orson Scott's court card. Uh, or <laughs> my favorite comment. All right, here. Let me.